0: Before we get started with this first episode, I want to dedicate it to the victims of the Buffalo Tops supermarket terrorist attack. These were men and women doing what so many of us do on a Saturday afternoon, shop, shopping for their families, for their loved ones. And yet because of the color of their skin, they were targeted. Today's conversation on Here with Maggie John is a timely one, and one I hope you will listen fully to. Welcome to Here with Maggie John, a podcast about life stories and lessons learned that asks the question what got you to the place you find yourself in at this point in your life? We have a lot in store on this first episode, but before we jump in, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to listen to what I think is my sweet spot, listening and interviewing amazing people about life lessons, and today is no different. My first guest is Edelet McVicker. She is the author of a brand new book called Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy, and reclaiming our humanity. Yep. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> For my black and brown sisters and brothers especially, I already know what you're thinking. Yes, it's going to be a fascinating conversation between a black woman and a white woman about white supremacy and dismantling uh, racism in our society. It's, it's a good conversation. I hope you'll listen to all of it later on in the show. My best friend, Roxanne Francis will drop by. She's a psychotherapist and, uh, we're going to have a a regular segment on the show called black girl chat. And this one being the first will be a special conversation because I know many of you are listening in wondering, is Maggie going to talk about it? You know, it, the thing that has occupied my time for the past couple of months? Well, I will, and you'll have to stay tuned for that here with maggie john is brought to you by mj media coaching let's make your story shine are you an author who is in need of some special coaching maybe you have an interview coming up and you need some special tips from a professional on what to say and importantly what not to say what to wear and how to capture an audience mj media coaching is here to help Or are you a podcaster looking to brush up on your interviewing skills? MJ Media will help you get to know your audience and speak directly to them. Check out www.mjm.coach for more details. And if you mention that you heard us here, this ad on this podcast, you will get 5% off your first consultation session. All right, let's get into our first episode. My guest was born and raised in South Africa during the apartheid era. She has spent her life ever since leaving the construct of whiteness, unlearning so much of what she had internalized and learning a new way of being human. In 1995, her journey took her to Taipei, Taiwan, where she worked as a reporter and then in 1999 moved from Taiwan to Canada. She is the founder of She Loves Media Society and Dangerous Women Community and is the author of a brand new book, Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. Here is my conversation with Idalette McVicker. Thank you so much, Idalette, for being here
1: today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be
0: here. And being here, like I, you know, present. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we want to do in this next 45 minutes to an hour is being present and really uh, Mm -hmm. discovering and delving into how God has got you to this place. So, Edalette, if I were to ask you, where are you mentally, spiritually at this very
1: moment, what would you say? Hmm. You know, I'll, I I like to answer that question by just grounding myself right in the space where I'm sitting. Like, so I'm in the basement of our home, and yeah. um, in my desk, and um, but I'm sitting on the unceded territories of the Kwantlen, the Semiyamo, and the Stolo peoples. And when I am in this moment and in this place, I come I come to this moment across four continents. Actually, I was born and raised on um, in South Africa. Uh, I moved to Taiwan in my early 20s and then my ancestors are from Europe mm-hmm. and then right now I'm in North America so when I come to this moment I come from those very many places and each one of those places is so special to me um, and has informed my journey and my story in very deep ways and so I thank you for that question because um that that really is what brings me to this moment. Um, I also love to say that I was that I was held, and I'm still held by the Drakenstein Mountains, um, that were the mountains of a, that were outside in the backyard as a kid when I was growing up, and the majestic mountains. The, they still hold me in my spirit, um, and you know I'm also nourished by I was nourished by both the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans growing up. And now by the Pacific Ocean, and so um, when I think about how those the oceans connect us and our human story as well, the pain also that those oceans tell. Yeah, you know I'm I'm, yeah, <laughs> I come to this moment with holding all of that, and yeah, grateful to be here.
0: Yeah, I think about all of the bodies, the mm-hmm. stories yeah. that these oceans carry. People mm-hmm. tr- crossing over with hope, with despair, with confusion, yeah. all of those emotions coming together. How would you describe your spiritual state in where mm-hmm. you sit here at this moment?
1: No, I fully alive, right? Like, I just, yeah, right. That I think, you know, I wrote a book called Recovering Races, and it's kind of this really hard place where you reckon with your world and your story Mm. and at the same time the more I have been reckoning with that and I've been delving into that the more fully alive I'm becoming so the the subtitle of that is you know dismantling white supremacy and reclaiming our humanity and for me really this is this is what it has been is that the more I care and understand my belonging to the pain and suffering and oppression of others the more I am also coming into my full self. Hmm. Um in South Africa, there the the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was so gracious in his in his um explanation of this and just in his gift for me in the book, There's no No future without forgiveness. He talked about the, the, the concept of Ubuntu, which is an African concept, and but he explained it that um we are so connected to each other. And in South Africa, where I was growing up, white people and black people did not understand how deeply, or white people did not understand. How deeply we were connected to the oppression and the suffering of Black people and people mm-hmm. of color and Indigenous people, right? He said, um, and he was quoting a movie um, by Sydney with the, that had Sydney Poitier in it. And, and um, in the movie, it, there's a there's a scene where there's two people in a ditch, a mm-hmm. Black man and a white man, and they're both chained together and they're they're convict, I believe, and they're trying to get out of the ditch. And as the white man is trying to get out he realizes he can't get out because he's chained to the black man Mm -hmm. and it's only and and the the archbishop said it's so beautiful it's only we understand our connectedness and how we are chained to each other and that our freedom is also connected to each other that we can move forward in the story and so for me that that's really as I undo the chains of what we've put on other people or as I'm mindful of that as I repent of that as I as I hold space for the irreparable harm as my friend Kathy Kung talks about that we have done um and you just sit with that there's something that happens in your spirit where you're this the the irony of that is the liberation that comes to the oppressor as well Mm. right it's like you can't when you care about freedom for everyone there's there's room there's there's things open up in your own spirit. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's fully alive. I don't, you know, yeah, I love
0: it. I love it. Um, Recovering racist. You, you alluded to it. I have so many questions about this book. Um, mm-hmm. It's called dismantling white supremacy and reclaiming our humanity. I'm going to be very honest with you, Edela, as a black woman, when I first saw this, I was a little weary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I was a <laughs> little weary of and course I, I, and so i want to have a really honest conversation with you i love and so, it but- so is there a a sense of of a presumptuous mindset when you say that you're a recovering racist can that be presumptuous to think that Do, does does anybody and i know it's recovering so obviously you're in a yeah. process yeah. but yeah. yeah i just love to hear um the choice of that word and and just maybe this even the struggle with with thinking right. that about that
1: right so I think it was 2016 or 2017 I was at the Festival of Faith and Writing and mm-hmm. you know I've been on this journey for a long time right yes. and so um much of my liberation was coming from just like learning from Black authors Black activists uh, Indigenous activists um and but I was still struggling because I'm this Afrikaner woman in the world. And when I woke up to the the, the reality that I was apartheid and my part in it, I thought, first of all, oh, I was part of the, I was part of the people who voted for change. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of a good part in the story, right? I, and then I realized, uh no, I'm mm-hmm. part of this is my people who had created. And so when I realized that um my people were part of creating this um what the united nations called a crime against humanity Uh. i was like okay i don't know what to do with my humanity in this yeah i don't know do i have a right to belong in the circle of humanity if we think about the large circle of humanity do i have a right to belong here shame wanted to tell me something different Uh. and so my journey was really saying okay i don't think i'm supposed to stay in shame Uh um but I don't know what the options are. How do I move out of it? So I was just on a quest of learning. Well, what do I do with this? What do I do with my story? Yeah. Really. Right. um And so probably. So this was. I mean, this was years. Right. So 1994, 1995, 1996 was when I had this deep, this real warm wash of shame. I was standing in Taipei, and reckoning with. Okay, I am part of this large story of oppression, and. Um, so then, in 2016, so it, I mean, I think there was a, there was a sense of me that wanted to kind of prove that I was a good white Afrikaner. I was a good mm-hmm. white person in the world. And um, when I was sitting in at the festival, uh, the, the Reverend um, Kelly Brown Douglas was speaking, and the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, but my apologies, the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas said this, and she was quoting a friend, and she said. The only thing white people can be are recovering racists mm. and when i sat there i was like oh that feels like truth in my body mm. it feels like sobriety like that moment of reckoning that moment of 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 rock bottom mm-hmm. like and i looked at my friend I was like, she did say that right like i i heard that correctly <laughs> And my friend's like, yeah. And like later that evening we were sitting, um, and I said to her, I am a recovering racist. That's me. And she said, Yeah. And so I sat with that idea for a long time. And mm-hmm. honestly, like it just it felt like truth mm-hmm. um because I had tried to run away from that confession or that acknowledgement for so long. But once I acknowledged it, it's like it, it just felt like um. I can't run away from this. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. This is it. And then, what do I do with that? How do yeah. I walk in that, with that, through that, alongside others? Um, and what what is my yeah? You know, what do I do with this? And so that's been the journey of that. Yeah. Um, I, I again. I, so for me, every time these things, are, I wouldn't have said that to you unless I'd heard it. Um, and not only from the Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, but I'd heard it from other Black um leaders as well. Mm. who who's had said these things about recovering races, like and white people need to gather in kind of in the basement and do this. And I was like, once I heard it two, three times, I was like, okay, mm. this is not only was it true that first time, but I it's lining up now. There is um there's more people who are saying that and it's and it's not white people saying this. Yeah. And so that's where that came from and it's kind of like the ugly truth right it's like you know you look at that and you're like mm, um yeah yeah i would love to hear from you like the presumption around that what, what was that for you well I, I think when i first
0: saw it i thought well first of all um to say that you're recovering you know i i've met a lot of white people who say i'm not i'm not racist yeah. you know but there are so many biases known or unknown, you know, unconscious or conscious. Um, Or, you know, you identify something and say, well, that was racist. And they're like, no, it wasn't. And then they backpedal or try to explain away my lived experience if I explain a situation. And so when I hear a white person saying I'm a recovering racist, I'm always like, well, who has... Who has given you that authority to say that? Yeah. So so as we deconstruct that term, yeah. recovering yeah. racist, there comes an acknowledgement of the word racist. And yeah. so when for you, Idolette, did you think, oh, I am racist or the thoughts that I have or the way that I see the world is racist? When did that come about? You
1: know, um, it's been a long journey but i think that moment in 2016 was was that very reckoning with it i i was trying so hard to prove that i wasn't racist yeah um and i remember there was 2012 um we had dinner i we had some friends over from south africa um we had friends local friends we were sitting around the table and um and i think somebody made a joke or something said just named the word racist mm-hmm. And I was all up in my white fragility, like Mm -hmm. I burst into tears, like I was, I was literally the, like that was textbook, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I started learning, and I heard about, I mean, I read Robin DiAngelo's PDF when it was still a PDF form about Mm -hmm. white fragility, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like you can't, I couldn't see it within myself until Mm -hmm. I was like, I did that, I did that thing, I did that very thing, right? Um, And so when you hold in your life, Oh, I was trying so hard not to be that racist, but acknowledging it's actually a lot more liberating than trying to run away from and prove that I'm not like you spend so hmm. much time to prove it. You're acknowledging not. that you're a racist was liberating. Yes. Wow. And it's, you know, like I write about it. It's like, it's not, it's not that, it's not that I was the, the racist to, or you know, like I was not wearing a hood. Yeah. I I was, or if something was coming up in, in the backyard barbecue, I would actually speak up against it. I would mm-hmm. actually name it. But I, I realized the racism that I've been a part of is that, that my consciousness was shaped by it. Mm-hmm. How much my my consciousness was shaped by a hierarchy of human value and worth, right? And, yeah. and so to undo that over and over and, and just keep doing that, right?
0: Um, well, even a hierarchy of racism, right? So will, someone will say, well, I, you okay. know, I'm, I'm not the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. I think I right. Don't right. kill people, right. but I, I mean, yeah. again, racism is racism. Yes. It was, yes. you know, and yes. so there's no hierarchy of hate. Yes. It's just hate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So like one of the things I wanted to, like, here was another revelation. It's like, I was like, I wanted to say I was the worst white woman in the room. And then I was like, uh, "No, that's also that's again that you're playing mm-hmm. right into this idea of hierarchy of worth." Mm-hmm. I am human. I am this recovering racist on a journey of recovery, and I am beloved. Yeah, right. So I mean, those those are hard things, but yeah. You uh, you write
0: about or you say that this book is specifically for white people. What what do white people need to hear? at the end of this, again, I think uh, reading the book, I mean, again, I'm not white. So I'm reading it from a different perspective. And so there'll be a lot of emotions I I trust for white people as they read. Um, What is, what is the ultimate takeaway that you want white brothers and sisters to get from, from your book?
1: First of all, I just want to, I, I, I really kind of this is what I, I this is something I learned from Rachel Ricketts yeah and she talked about so much of the world has been around in two and four on has been for white people the world has really been centered around white people uh-huh. and so I say that the book is two white people like for a different world mm. um you know just kind of even again taking that centering off of that I hope right uh-huh. um so I, you know, I don't know why it's so hard for, for white people to repent yeah. and to acknowledge and to um just acknowledge the stuff that we've been a part of. Mm. I would love for white people to walk in humility, to seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Mm. Mm. Right. I think so much of this is ego. You know, it's been created and constructed by an ego system and to get out of our ego and get into humility hmm. i think as a follower of jesus like I, repentance is such a huge part of faith and i don't understand mm-hmm. what, why is it so hard because it asks us to get out of our ego and to get on our knees and to acknowledge our the, the how we've hurt others yeah um so there's also an
0: admission of fault which yeah. is hard for people sometimes
1: And I guess that's the piece of the individual and the collective. Yes. Right? People are like, oh, well, I haven't done this. But yeah, actually, you're participating in this. Like, I have literally benefited by being in, like, when I was in apartheid. Like, there was more money allocated to white kids Mm. in my white school, right? So literally, financially, this is a small part in how I've benefited, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the individual and the collective and I think I think maybe that's part of being born in South Africa that you know I was shaped in a in in a in a collective a sense of a collective it's not it was not in such an individualistic society Mm -hmm. um so I think I'm like I do think of the collective like even for me to say this is my people my Afrikaner people or just say white people, right? Like as, as a collective, but then also to see my collective as part of the human collective, right? Yeah. That yeah. we belong to each other. So I you know, I just I would like, you know, I I want us to make some things right, but I know, you know, I know there's so much harm that's been done that are that is irreparable. Uh-huh. But to sit with that and to, to do the work, to to look within my own story, what is it? What is it in my own story? How can I be part of making something right? What is one thing I can do? Where does my story intersect with racism? Um, and what can I do? Yeah. And if every white person did that, if we start being becoming part of repair and restitution, right? Like mm. something would happen, I think. Yeah. You know, if if white people walked humbly, if we walked humbly. Um and not have to be so defensive. Like when mm-hmm. you tell me your story, I you know, just like to listen. Um, one of the things I talk about is that um we need to learn to listen to anger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to listen to pain, mm-hmm. however that comes, um and and to hold space for that mm-hmm. pain that we can hear each other into healing. Yeah.
0: As you wrote that, I also think we also have to learn how to listen to truth yes. is I think yes. sometimes the idea is that, oh, black people are angry, Black women are angry, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest things that black women face all the time is, mm-hmm. oh, she's angry. you know, there's the angry black woman um With every right to be and but but I don't even think I, it's I don't even think mm-hmm. it's anger, eleven sometimes. <laughs> yes. I think it's just truth, yeah. you know, it's sharing a lived truth and uh, and just looking at the perspective a little bit differently in that I think is is helpful in the process of of healing as well Um, and how do we get there right where um, my lived reality is worth listening to and it might not even be full of pain it's just filled with this is a fact this is lived reality for me being married to a black man having black sons this is my lived reality. You talk a lot about this page 68, 69, talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Okay. And you alluded to it as well when you were talking about white guilt. Talk to me about the difference. Between, I, I've had some conversations with some of my black girlfriends and I have one black girlfriend who said, I don't have time for white guilt, yeah. right? Like we just need yeah. to move on. Yeah. And, and so describe to me again, how you see the difference between guilt versus shame.
1: For me, shame was, um, was it, 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 um, and I'm trying to find a better word, but it was paralyzing, it kept me stuck, mm. it meant I couldn't move forward. Whereas guilt was like something's wrong, I need I can do something about this. Like when I move it to guilt, it actually is simply an indicator that I've done something wrong or that my people have done something wrong, I and mean, then what is my responsibility? So, guilt um for me those are the, that like I think wonder if if sometimes why people get stuck in shame rather than in guilt because guilt you can move on you can say like what is the action that I can take like let's say I've stolen something from someone like literally I've stolen money from kids my age who mm-hmm. grew up in South Africa at the time um because I got more money for towards my education like literally right so I can go and calculate that number and I can pour that back into education now, right? So that's, that. the guilt can then mobilize me to do something about that. Mm. But if I just wanna stay in that and I just wanna say like, oh, I just feel guilty. Like I feel I can't do anything. I don't have time for that either, but how can we mobile? But why can we take that guilt energy, yeah, right? And mobilize it and move it towards repair and restitution. Yeah, instead of just sitting in it. Yeah. That's good,
0: that's, that's good. I love the Ally Anthem and I, oh. I, I want to read She's uh, some of it. Um, I just want to read parts of it because it's quite long. But um, this is what resonated with me. I will not weaponize my tears. I will not play the victim. I will not expect Black women to fix me. I will never question the validity of the cause. When I want to quit, I will dig deeper And meet with my ugly. I will remember my discomfort is nothing compared to the violence my privilege had inflicted. I will remind myself on the side of history I wish to belong. I must be aware that I will lose friends, positions, and parts of myself, that this work will be my unraveling. Today I declare I am committed to this work to break the soul ties with my privilege and proclaim a true and authentic allyship for the first time in my life. Wow. Tell me what that those words meant to you as you read them and and discovered this this beautiful anthem.
1: Oh. Yeah, by Vianima Torto, right? That she's yeah. incredible, right? Yeah. Um I just it was just language. It was language of liberation. Right? Um you know that yeah, I will never. I will not expect black women to fix me. That's liberation, uh, right? I have to do my own work. Um, I need to deep. I, like I will dig deeper and meet with my ugly, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Um. And I will remember my discomfort is nothing, nothing compared to the violence my privilege had inflicted. Mm. This. This is why this book is a side conversation it's a small piece yeah. of the yeah. violence we have inflicted right this is not a center of the story conversation yeah this is we go off and we got to we got to do our work but this large story of humanity the pain the violence over centuries that yeah. is the main story right this is just, this is us doing the work on the side here so um no this was this was incredible what a gift what a gift she's written, right? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So as you as you were growing up and these were formative years, you know, you talk about stories of you know your mother putting uh, a plate and you know the utensils for a servant under the under the sink, and you it, it just again these flashbacks that you've had of you know even voting. Uh, and being in line with other black people that that time when when eventually black people were allowed to vote in South Africa just just wondering again how that helped formulate again this journey that you're on as being a recovering racist and growing up in South Africa in such a formative a formative time
1: right oh I mean it was huge it's huge obviously right so the more the interesting part was when I so I grew up and then when until I was about 16 I read this book that really awakened me to um the true story of apartheid the truth tellers right Mm -hmm. um and what was really going on and i was very disillusioned with church that i'd grown up the all-white church the -hmm. all-white school my all-white neighborhood and i was like what else do i not know what else have i been lied about and and what is what is the truth i want to go i want to find out and and um so i kind of set off on this journey but Um, as I, and I left my faith, really, because for me, the faith that informed my life at that point was the the Dutch Reformed Church, and, you know, reckoning with the fact that they were part of creating apartheid as a theology, right, like to endorse the apartheid, and um, so I was like, I don't want anything to do with that, Um, and so, but only when I went to Taiwan, I kind of came back to this, to to jesus which I was really surprised about mm. and um and so then as i was leaning into my faith the more i the more i was learning to be intimate with god with jesus the more i felt like i was being returned to my story of going up mm. it's like i couldn't I, it was like it wasn't like i was like here's my story now i'm moving on it was like almost like no we're going back Now we need to go look at what happened in South Africa during that time. And it's like, I didn't, I wouldn't have said that my faith was anti-racist at the time. I didn't have the language for that yet, but it was like my faith and anti-racism began walking alongside each other. Uh Like I had to look at my story and my context of growing up. And so honestly, I was starting, I just had, it was like, I would spend, I would you know, pull out my journal and I would feel stuck in certain places. And then it's like the spirit would take me back. Okay. And I, let's go look at that law. Or I just had a real sense. I had to sit with um, the the gardener. His name was Flip. Mm. And I don't know his last name. And the fact that I don't know his last name. And the fact that I was a little girl who called this elderly black man Flip, where we call everybody else with very respectful titles in Afrikaans. Uh-huh. and i just called this man flip and and so i just sit with that like what is going on here and like and then being really mindful of okay w- the fact that those the the plate and the spoon and the cup was in a yeah. s- separate cabinet to sit with that and to repent and um and just to honor his humanity in a way in my privacy of my room Mm. So, how god can i make this right i can't ever make it right to flip but i'm hoping this work would make it right for the generations that follow yeah um and there was this you know so it informed so much of 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 how i was even thinking about honoring everyone right how can i how, how how do i honor flip now in my walk Mm. in my daily walk right um yeah so that it's he's still with me there's people who are with me who walk with me i believe um and 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 they they hold me accountable Uh, right yeah um the people that apartheid dismissed and and devalued and dehumanized jesus says he was a gardener funny you shouldn't know who he truly was my beloved son and so i walk with that that's part of what i have to hold in this world um and so whenever i walk on the street i think this could be this could be a flip um but um You know, that always there's an invitation to go further and deeper, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was having a a conversation with a friend recently, a Black friend, who's a poet from South Africa. And uh, she said to me, I want you to go to Urania. And I was like, excuse me? What? And she said, I want you to go to Urania. So Urania is a place in South Africa uh, that is... um, It kind of became a thing around the 1994 elections where Mm -hmm. white people kind of looked for an enclave to go and live, Mm. to go and be. They kind of wanted to create this, they created this kind of a white town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it until she said that. And then I went and did my research, and I will keep doing the research around that. And this town in South Africa is growing. Mm. Whereas people were thinking, yeah, this like whatever this is happening. No, actually, this is growing, so this there's something about this town that white people are attracted to and that they're moving to. Mm-hmm. And um so when she said that, I'm like, this is the more I work, I do this work, it feels like I'm called to go back mm-hmm. and to really move into like the really look at whiteness. And these white enclaves and what whiteness is trying to create. And um, and what can it who do I need to connect with? I don't, you know, not to do until the world is safe for you and for her, right? Like what is the work that I need to do hmm. for that to happen? Um, and when there is a community like that, I don't know. So I, you know, this is unfolding for me, but this is constant, right? So this yeah. is This is not, this is um, is what is the next kind of invitation? Yeah. Right.
0: And how do you not do that work alone or feel like you have to do that work alone? Because I think what happens sometimes is um, as the dialogue continues about reconciliation, sometimes white people feel like they have to do that work alone of undoing. Instead of partnering with black people to say, Hey, how do we do this work together? Oh yeah. Right. And so that's another, another unraveling of feeling, you know, the the white savior mentality of feeling like I have to do everything. Yes.
1: In order to know, back
0: to that guilt and shame conversation that we
1: had. Right. Absolutely. Like, I mean, Oh, I don't know if you saw the the white savior, no white savior Instagram account recently. What even happened with that? Oh, okay. Yeah oh okay um yeah it's an instagram account it's called no white saviors and um it was based out of uganda and it just recently came out that there were there were different there were co-founders um um and the one co-founder was actually a uh, was a, a white woman from the u.s mm. and the other co-founder was a black woman from uganda but the white woman took over the account mm. and it's like uh, the very thing that they were standing against, and that they, they almost have like a million followers on Instagram, and I was like, "This is happening right here." So yeah. I think that what you're talking about is like, um, and I I, 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 need people to keep me accountable too, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because it kind of, kind of like that. I don't know if it's greed, right? If it's power the the intoxication maybe of something like that Mm. right to just and then you perpetuate the thing that you're actually against right Mm. how many times have we seen that with human trafficking the people who stand up for it the most are the ones who then get caught doing it right so I'm like I'm very aware of that (laughs) right so what you're saying is so for me it's very like I have to um here I am a white woman talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but this for me is if we're in an anti-racism conversation where I'm talking it has to be like 10% of the story. Yeah. Like it can't, like it can't be like I I am <laughs> not out there as a teacher or as any as an as an anti-racist educator. I really like I I have learned, and I am still learning from Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Like, mm. that's the first place that has to have my face, my face, right? The people who have to have my ear, my attention, um, my learning, my humility, right? Um, and then, okay, I'm hearing that. Something comes up in me, I go and do the work. And we can, and that's part of that, why we're, I'm saying, like, let's do this in circles, so that we can do less harm when we're in the bigger circle right? So some things come up. Um, I feel this, oh, what do I do with this thing, right? Like, what do I do with white guilt, right? Rather than bringing it to public spaces where I'm, where I'm can do harm, can we work this out and kind of just figure this out? Okay, and then we go back and we listen and we learn and we, that's really where the focus has to be. Idole, I struggle with the word listen sometimes because, you know, let's go
0: back to George Floyd. And, yeah. you know, how the whole world, all of a sudden ears perked up and everybody was listening to things we were always, we were screaming out for so long. And so there's almost become this mantra of listening and learning. You know, we're hearing, you know, hear, oh, I'm yeah. listening and I'm learning. Mm-hmm. And it's been two years now of George Floyd, but it's been hundreds of years of oppression. Mm-hmm. And so how do we move from, and I agree, we need to listen to the truth tellers, but move to action
1: mm-hmm.
0: as well and what does that look like and I think we've just alluded to it working together with people but talk to me about the power of truth and reconciliation the power of moving forward then saying we have done our listening mm-hmm. and now we're moving
1: into action Edalev. Yeah. What does right. that look like? <laughs> I think this is what, I think we're, this is unfolding. I have to be honest with you. Like, even as I was writing this and I was like, this book has to be part of repair. Yeah. Um. And so then I was like, um. I was watching the, I was watching like right after George Floyd was, uh, after his death and watching, you know, this explosion and this, this people paying attention, you know, like, well, okay. um. And then in june the, the new york times bestseller list is all, all these books mm-hmm. about anti-racism and the one mm-hmm. at the top is a book by a white woman mm-hmm. and then there was like well what's she doing with the money because there's a lot of money involved in this and i was like oh i never thought that a book about racism could actually make money mm-hmm. right because i had been talking about this for so long that it's always felt like this like you're kind of coming against the wall people are like, like, this is like this right? Like, you're yeah. just like, it wasn't a, it wasn't a center of the conversation kind of conversation, right? I was like, I was, I've been talking about racism for so long. And then I was like, Oh, this book can actually make money. Mm. Uh, no, I can't be benefit. I can benefit from that because I'm writing about apartheid and racism. And so that was then another conversation It was like, okay, now what do we do with that? Right. Yeah. And so how does this book become part of repair? and so I was and so that took months for me to just okay what do I do with this um God help me in prayer um and in conversation um and then it was just very clear for me it was like because I live here 30 percent of the, the the profits of this book is going to rest like reconciliation in Canada right mm. the, the the history of what we've done with Indigenous people in Canada is so atrocious right so how can we help you repair that and then back to South Africa, and then 30% for me was to the US, because so much of the language and the activism that I have benefited from came out of the US for me. So I felt like I have benefited so much from the work of people in the us that i felt like that was really important too and to see the interconnectedness too right and so that was a decision you know like and you know like well husband (laughs) by the way i'm writing i've written this book it's taken this long to write and now we're not making money of this yeah right but that for me was part of the action that needs to be taken Mm. right i think it requires money i Mm -hmm. honestly think it requires money because you know um if you if you look at you know it's it's great to to do the repentance it's great to do the turning away from to learn to unlearn to listen to do the okay. but actually like now what are you doing with how are you actively part of repair mm. right and what spaces are you showing up in where is your money going yes um, <laughs> um yeah and people don't want to talk about it, and i didn't want to talk about it was like what we have to talk about restitution and i was like And I heard that a long time ago, and it took a while for me to kind of, okay, yeah, I need to be right in here. So this for me is unfolding, but this is absolutely an active part of participation in in undoing this, right? Like, yeah, and when you look at the money, where the money is going, um, just money is a big part of this, absolutely. It needs to be. Now. I have two last questions. I love
0: your, your, your point on page 175 about remembering and re Explain that to our listeners, the, the difference. Cause I know hearing it, you're like, Maggie, you just repeated the same word twice, yeah. but seeing it remembering uh is, is deep. And, and I think is a part of the psyche and part of, of that healing process.
1: Right. Right so much of what apartheid had done is this separation yeah this fragmentation this not only separating people from each other but separating stories like literally taking people's stories and and dumping it in the ocean Mm -hmm. like i I, you you probably read about district six right Mm -hmm. Mm there's a fragmentation of stories and of people's lives of families families were separated um and so for me, then that separation, that fragmentation within my soul was in my spirit. Mm. and so when I look back, when I remember stories when i when I honor what we had like not what we had done, but the people who had been violated, who had been hurt, what um the laws had done, what people had done to each other, when I remember that, there is a re remembering a, a putting together it's like the it's it's like this this coming together there's an there's a there's an there's an image in ezekiel of this this coming together of this rising it feels like that this re this putting together in a new way becoming put together um it's for me it's even like psalm 139 when we're reading, being when we read about the god knitting us individuals together like mm-hmm. i got this deep sense of god knitting us together as humanity yeah and so as we remember that god also puts us together that we are being remembered the, our, our parts mm-hmm. are being put together in a more beautiful and and more human i don't know hopefully healing way right mm. um, if one part of the body suffers every part of the body suffers how are we not paying attention to that yeah how are we i just you know i just i think it seems so obvious to me if, if our black brothers and sisters are suffering if they're in pain that's mm. our body mm-hmm. that's our body that's in pain and you can't you know turn your eye away from that or your ear away from it this is our body it's our human body yeah that is in pain and i think i don't know we numb ourselves or we turn off that part and then you do that you turn a part of off of your humanity right mm-hmm. but when we pay attention to that when we lean in when we honor the pain and the truth as you say too right mm-hmm. There is that becoming whole, that becoming human, that remembered, and we're woven together. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, in a new way. Yeah.
0: Let's end it there. I, I won't <laughs> even ask the last question. That was that was a good ending. That was great. Thank you so much, Idile. It was a pleasure. It really was. Thank you for uh, for allowing me to challenge you a little and ask you some of those questions. I I loved this discussion. I loved it. I would like more challenges, yes. <laughs> 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 oh, thank you I, think, I think we need to have more of these conversations, uh-huh. right? I think there's, uh-huh. a, there's a need for Black women and white women to have some honest conversations about race. Uh-huh. And yeah. I thank you for your boldness and being willing to step into that through this
1: book. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your voice. Mm. Thank you for your body in this world. I honor you. Thanks again. All right. Now it's
0: time for a really special segment on uh, here with Maggie John called Black Girl Chat. And I am joined by my best friend, Roxanne Francis. She's a psychotherapist, amazing woman mom of two rambunctious, beautiful boys, wife of Priven Francis. I can go on and on and on. great friend. Uh, Hey, Roxanne. Hey, Maggie. It's so good to be here. 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 here, That's right. Here with Maggie. So you have heard uh, my chat with Edalette. Yeah. What were some of your initial thoughts? Yeah, you know, as I was listening, I know that at the beginning you were saying to her that your uh, your take on the title, like it it, it 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 not not that it rattled you, but it really caused you to think and challenge her about mm-hmm. the title and whether or not people can actually be recovering and do they even have the the the, the maybe the right or the space to say that they're recovering racist. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that I I have a little bit of a different take on it. I feel like, um, you know, we are. I think we should all be aware that the systems that we all live in um, are, are inherently racist by design. They mm-hmm. were not made by us, for us, in service of us in any way. And um, for those white individuals who are allies in this space, I think the whole point of, of our work in terms of yourself and myself and other Black people who are um, pushing uh, for equality is, mm-hmm. um, part of our work is to to have people move from the space of being racist to the space of, of not being so, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think because it's a continual journey for the people who are trying to sort of transition from one place to the next, I think that people are always in the process of recovery, of doing better, of getting better, of going from uh, racism to, to, to um. To anti-racism, right? Yeah. And so I think... I, I, I So think you that, didn't struggle as much with the title as I not did? Not so much. I think as you were interviewing her, I think maybe with some of the content probably, but not with the title. I think the title was probably appropriate. Yeah. It's interesting because I... And I know both of us have been burned... Yes, By white people, yes. by white women. <laughs> I'll just say it, yeah. but specifically for me, for by white women. So, uh, you know, when I see that, I automatically think, who gives you permission to say that, right? Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. I think, you know, I can think of some uh, white people in my life who have been allies, are allies, but to, I just felt like, oh, to say your recovery, like, just, it just seemed so, like, weird. I'm just, just taking this title. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I have to say, at the end of the conversation, I really... Okay, so first of all, at the end of the book, I was still like, well, I don't know, Idolette, But the end of my conversation with Idalette, yeah. I felt like this is a woman who is truly trying her hardest to change her world and influence her world for good. Right. And I I love her because of that. Um, But I guess I am always thinking of those people who want to claim that they're allies – and yet still struggle when I come to them and say, oh, this happened to me, and I believe it happened to me because I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be like, well, Maggie, how do you know it didn't... And and try to negate their way out of situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking of those people who think that they're recovering racist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? I totally get that. Who are always just like, but still not seeing it for what it is and hearing right. us for what we are saying. Right. So your take is more... Let me see the walk and, yes. and, and then we can talk about whether or not you're recovering. Yes. And maybe that's why mm-hmm. after having a conversation with her for an hour, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. you're legit. Mm-hmm. You're, you're really doing the work. But do you think that it's possible that people are recovering in some areas, but still struggling others? Yes. Then how do you call yourself recovering? Because it's a work in process. Like it's, it's always yeah. in progress right yeah you work on one area you don't work you know some areas we struggle in and sometimes yeah. it takes um a black person to say hey what are you doing or, that doesn't yeah. make any sense you are ignoring me for people to re- and sometimes i don't even notice in the moment <laughs> sometimes i i get in arguments with my husband and yeah. in the moment i'm like oh and then afterwards i'm like you know what Here's a point <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> We just don't tell them that we they just... have sex, but yeah. <laughs> and of course it's not the same thing, right? Yeah. But I feel like- But you know what? Even as you said that, Roxanne, I'm thinking about people who say they're recovering alcoholics. And you're mm-hmm. right. Not, and I'm not trying, please, listeners, yes, I'm not yes. trying to say they're the same thing. But yes. using the word recovering and something that you're struggling with, right, yes, yes, you're going to have times where you're not fully- you know, you might, you might slide, you might make accidents, you might say things, but you, your intent is to be in the process of recovering. Exactly. I guess my thing is, make sure that you have black people in your life who, are, as who you said, are checking check you. you. Who are checking right. you. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I always raise an eyebrow for people who say that they're allies and they've got no black friends. Right. Like, mm, who are you an ally with? Yeah, the TV, the books yeah. that you're reading, Oprah. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> the imaginary black friend. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. What were your other thoughts on the conversation? Um, I really liked the. I forget what it's called. Is it the Allies Anthem? Oh my gosh, the Ally yes. Anthem. Yes. Yes. And now I'm like, I need to go find that book. Yes. <laughs> Check out Here With Maggie's uh, Instagram page. It will be on there. So you yes. can... Um, yes. Yeah, it's such a powerful statement. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no yeah. love to that. The other thing that really made me go, huh, uh, was I was actually folding laundry when I was listening to it. And at that point in the podcast, in the recording, I, I stopped and I put the clothes down. And I was like, huh. She was talking about when a white person writes a book about racism, what do you do with the proceeds? Yes. And I was like, huh? Right? (laughs) I never really thought about that before. Right? How do you capitalize? Exactly. On centuries of pain. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was talking about um, as an Afrikaner, um, you know, growing up in that system and knowing that, uh, she got more money allocated to her as a white mm-hmm. uh, student than a black student. And then she was thinking, she she mentioned that, um, and I don't want to maybe misquoting her, but she mentioned something along the lines of, you know, she could calculate how much that would have been and pour it back into the system. And I thought to myself, that's a really good gesture. Mm-hmm. But when you think about how a black person does not get educated well. Yeah. And it's not just about the monetary. Uh, it, it's not about how much the education costs in yeah. the in the life of that child, but how is that lack of education going to impact their financial wellness yes. as they get older? How is that going to impact how they can, how they may or may not be able to provide for their family,
1: yeah. how
0: they, you know, their 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 self esteem, their mental wellness, mm-hmm. how that's going to impact generations to come? Like you can't just put. on that and say we're done. Right. Yeah. And restitution. Well, (laughs) and restitution is a whole other conversation, right? Because you know black people have different opinions on on that and yep. and can you put a number but you're right generational wealth the impact that that can have generationally yeah. that you'll never be able to repay back 100%
1: um
0: but then there are some black people that would say but still you know a number would be great to put something. on that something <laughs> a couple dollars would be good on that so you know here we are we are two black women raising black boys mm-hmm. in Canada mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, Canada. So how how do we, what does that look like for us as we, you know, we're both professionals in our field, uh, trying to educate in different ways as black women. Mm -hmm. What are some of the takeaways that you think uh, we can bring along with us from that conversation and just what it's like right now to be a Canadian black person? Because I feel I like I feel head. like the con- well and I feel like the conversation around race is always dominated by the American reality. Yes. And it is there are many similarities, but there are also many differences. differences. Yeah, for sure. And yes, white people that are listening, there is racism here in Canada. Yes. So we're not saying that there, you know, there's oh, there's less racism here. No, no, no. There's clear racism here. Yeah. But there is a different uh lived reality here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, oh, that's, a, that's a good one. I think that we have to be really aware. We can't put our head in the sand and say, like you said, you know, Canada is different from the States. Mm-hmm. It might be less in your face, but it is mm-hmm. still there. And yeah. we have to, um, you know, in my own life, I make a, a, a conscious effort as parents, we make a conscious effort to be very present mm. at our children's school. They mm-hmm. know Mr. and Mrs. Francis.
1: Mm-hmm. The children
0: in the hall know our faces. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right?
1: Yep.
0: Um, you know, we speak often to the teachers and the principal. Um, and the kids know that we are there for them. We are mindful to have um, friends in our lives that uh, represent sort of different um, different cultures, mm-hmm. but specifically uh, the Black community. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my boys are are very aware of, you know, as they're getting older, that, you know, this many people in this area of their life, whether it's school or otherwise, there's a lot of white people here and not not many black people. And so we have mm. conversations about that. We have to be, you know, where we live, where we go to school, where we go to church, where we play. We have to be, we have to use our voices. Mm. Um, I feel like I play a, a really delicate dance between, and I really shouldn't have to, but this is life, between um, uh, not being too, too, too loud and aggressive with my mm. objections, because I feel like sometimes people just shut down and they yeah. just dismiss you as loud and aggressive. Yeah. And so I have to be very, when I'm crafting emails, I'm, I I take a long time. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. And, and, reminding my children just as a mom i'm constantly reminding my children of their value in this world constantly telling them they're still small right they're 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 not teens yet i still see that as small i'm constantly telling them that their skin is beautiful that they're smart that they're Mm -hmm. athletic and thoughtful and compassionate and um and teaching them to respect other people I, I absolutely agree with everything you said. And I think it's interesting what you said about even writing an email, not sounding aggressive, Yeah, because if you were to talk, and I think you would might agree if you were to talk to white counterparts, female counterparts, mm-hmm. um, they would say, I have to sound aggressive. Uh. I have to be assertive. <laughs> right. And so, but for us, then if we do sound that way, yes. Oh, it's, you know, Roxanne, the angry black woman. It's Maggie, the angry black woman. There are so many different nuances Mm -hmm. and complexities that we have to navigate, even in our tone. The fact that you said that when, you know, if you have to go to the school, you and your husband go Mm -hmm. together, because again, you're fighting stereotypes of, you know, the single black mother Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so, and we do that all the time as well. We recently Mm -hmm. had to meet our youngest teacher and made sure that me and my husband could go and showed a united front and, yes. and, uh, even the way you dress, like, yes. I, was like oh, I need to make sure that I'm, you know, like, because yes. again, you just, you want to present a certain respectful, Kind Respectful. Of, yes, yes. yes. And and yes. again, you don't want to fulfill the stereotype many people have of the race. And that means sometimes not being able to really be yourself no, fully. You can't just fully relax and white people no. don't have to deal with that mess. Yes. Right? Yes. I remember being so. pregnant with our first and it was a high-risk pregnancy and every time we went to I had to go to see the OB, my husband took time off from work. Yep. And and came with me because lest they think you know, the stereotypical things, yes. right? Yeah. Even wearing a re- wedding, wedding ring. So I don't, have my, yes. I don't have my wedding ring on right now. Uh, but even like the other day, I had to take our oldest to the doctor. I'm like, oh, put on my That's wedding put ring. On. Yep.
1: Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want them to right. know. And the like, weight. and again- okay. And yes, the weight of that and the fact that like, what if I wasn't married? That doesn't mean that I deserve less. I have many girlfriends who are not married, who are single mothers, who are doing a great job. And yet there is this stereotype that, again, we... You know, you're fighting all yeah. the time and you're overthinking and overanalyzing yeah. everything you do and say and how you, what you wear before you step out of the house. All the time. I, I know a woman in, in the black community, a very successful woman. She runs a multiple sever figure business and mm. happens to be a single parent and mm-hmm. went to school to register her son for kindergarten and they gave her the subsidized form for daycare. Wow. And she's yeah. like, no, I can pay it. I, can like, pay I don't need it. subsidy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 This is what we're fighting as yeah. Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> and so grateful for voices like Edelette who, um, yeah, are stepping into spaces that again, um, and you know, as I said to her, we have to work together on this, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just her battle or the white battle, but it really is. How do we come together? Cause for so long, there has been so much segregation right? and how do we educate together and, I think there's more power with us walking alongside together on that journey than anything else. Mm -hmm. This has been great. Oh my goodness. It's over 20 minutes that we have been talking (laughs) in our first black girl chat. This has been fantastic. More to come. Great conversations to come uh, in the podcast to to follow. Thanks Roxanne for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. Yeah. Love it. I do know that there are those who are listening uh, primarily to hear if I will say anything about what has occupied uh, my time over the past four months as chair of the overseers board at the meeting house. And I'm not going to say much. And what I say here will be, um, the last of what I will ever say on this particular topic. Um, and that is uh, that I am in constant prayer about this. As many of you know, I've stepped down uh, from the board. Um, but I continue to be in prayer for all those involved in this horrific, horrific uh, chapter of the church, uh, the church life, not just of the Meeting House, but the church in general. You know, I was thinking about um, the scripture in Second, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And um, our church, the church, the global church, needs to turn from its wicked ways um, to seek God's face. There are, it seems like, countless stories over and over again of sexual misconduct that keep coming to the surface. Um, And I know, I know that this grieves God's heart. This is not the desire of his church. It is not the desire of his bride. And so my heart continues to grieve for the victims involved, the primary victim of the case, as well as, you know, family and people that surround uh, those involved that are also victims in all of this. And uh, and so I, I just continue to pray for God's peace. And can I also say for those who feel like they, need to add to the social media fodder. Can you imagine what it is like for someone to see their life continue to be scrutinized and analyzed on social media? You know, all of these people who think that they're experts on this particular case who, you know, feel that they have to inject their opinion, um, that can only be more traumatizing to someone who is trying to heal. And so I I would encourage that instead of maybe posting that tweet or posting that, you know, Instagram post, that you pray for primarily the victim that she um will encounter God's full healing. And, um, and that she has people around her that can continue to support her in that healing. And then this is the last thing I say is leadership is a lonely place. It is a very lonely place. But there are leaders out there trying to navigate this sad, sad reality in the church with wisdom and with prayer. And so pray for them. Don't just wait for them to make mistakes so that you can point a finger. We hold responsibility to care for our leaders well, and for those who are in the position to make decisions about these countless cases of sexual misconduct, We pray that they will do those things well, that they'll make those decisions well, and that they will care for the victims well and continue to work hard to make the church a safe space again. Because that is Jesus's intent, that it be a safe space For children, for women, for men. That's all I'll say on that. Thank you for joining me on episode one of Here with Maggie John. I want to thank Edelette McVicker and Roxanne Francis for joining me today. Check out our Instagram page, Here with Maggie, for the Allies Anthem and more great content. We are all on a journey. Let's learn from each other. A new episode drops the 19th of every month. Please rate and subscribe to this podcast so you know every time an episode drops. And let me know what you think of our first episode. And we will see you here with Maggie John next time.